Good morning, Cross Point Church. Welcome. Very glad you're here. If we have met, my name is Bruce Garner. I'm the senior pastor here at Cross Point, and that means a few things, but my primary task here is most Sundays to open the Bible with you and to examine God's Word together, and we have been for a few months We've rounded the corner. If this were a race, we've definitely turned toward home. We are in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. If you would open your Bible there, I want you to get settled in the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you if you'll just look around in the seats. If you don't have a Bible at home or if you don't have enough Bibles at home, (laughs) take one with you, please. We don't want these to be relics in a museum that are just sitting there year after year, we want these Bibles to be used. And on an entirely personal note, and this, this definitely puts me out of step with the times, I would encourage everybody who reads the Bible to do it on paper anytime they can. Um, that's not a spiritual thing, that's a brain thing. Different things happen to us when we're reading on screens. We've, got the, we've, been, we've all been reading and spending enough time on screens long enough that we know that. And the advantage of paper is it doesn't notify you of anything that is happening on social media. It doesn't ring. It doesn't interrupt with text messages from that goofy friend who doesn't go to church but sends you jokes during church. None of that happens with the paper Bible. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, do you have it? How many of you, like me, remember a time where seatbelts were optional? Oh, yeah. My parents, it seems crazy, almost murderous now, but when I was a little, little boy, my parents had a big panel van, and I'm an only child, and as you can tell, you know, not everything's working all the time up in this mind. If you know me, you know I need a lot of entertainment. So they would throw a mattress in the back. They would take out the seats, throw a mattress in the back of the van, throw in a box of books and a box of toys behind the mattress, and then throw me in there to roam in kind of a giant playpen for hundreds and hundreds of miles. My parents are missionaries, so we traveled all over the country. And then suddenly there were a need for seatbelts, and that was a bad day for children in America, (laughs) at least in terms of our perception, because the, the, the days of the mattress and the toys and the books and the comic books and all that stuff, and basically roaming around and crawling up to the front seat for a snack and retreating back to the book, those days were over. Suddenly there was a law that you had to be strapped in and sitting in an appropriate position, and no, you can't put the belt around your face, and there's just a... <laughs> At least for me, there was an educational curve that was necessary to get me to understand what a seatbelt was, why it would be helpful. And now, I don't know, do you even notice that you put your seatbelt on anymore? I mean, I put it in so reflexively, every once in a while, a police car drives by and I nervously check. (laughs) I always have it on. It's just as automatic as starting the car now. It's been ingrained into us, and obviously we know now that's a good thing. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because today's passage might seem at first a little bit like a seatbelt. There's nothing particularly exciting about the passage we're about to read. Aren't you just enthralled now? Can't you just wait to hear what it says? Holy smokes, this is going to be worse than usual. The pastor told us on the front side. It's not particularly exciting. 
Well, it's not, and here's why. 2 Corinthians is the letter of an apostle who by turns is heartbroken or rejoicing, dealing with a local church and all of its troubles. Because we're reading somebody else's mail, there we discover other people's names that we've never met. And today you're going to meet two other people that are mentioned by reputation with their names not even being written down on the page that were obviously known to Paul and it seems would have been known to the Corinthians, but you're quite literally reading somebody else's mail. And the first temptation in reading a passage like this is to ask yourself, why is it even here? And that's always an important Bible study question. Of all the things that God has chosen to tell us, He chose to tell us in writing just this much. It's a big book, but it's finite. It doesn't grow overnight. Scripture will not grow in your lifetime. Scripture will not grow ever. It has been given by God to us so that we would know what He wants us to know. And you should always ask in reading it, why is this here? And the adventure for me first as a Bible reader and then as a pastor, preacher, and Bible teacher was, what should our church know about this? Because this is quite literally somebody else's mail, and the problems they're dealing with are quite literally somebody else's problems. If you were here last week, you remember that the setting that Paul has now moved into as he begins to wrap up his letter is that he is reminding the Corinthians who are down in the southernmost part of Greece in a region called Achaia. Remember that word, it's going to come up in the letter just so you recognize what he's talking about. That a year earlier, they, along with many other churches, had heard about the plight of starving Christians back in Jerusalem and had started to commit themselves to something that only Jesus can do where Gentiles rally together, give sums of money, and those, that money is to be entrusted to travel the many miles from Greece back to Jerusalem to bring relief to the poor so that the Christians in Jerusalem won't starve. The trouble is, they had promised to do it a year earlier. Guess how much they had done? Not a bit of it. It had all been good intentions. I asked you last week, I'll ask you again, did you have any good intentions this week that didn't result in action? May I suggest to you that a lot of us get stuck on a spiritual treadmill of good intentions and never step forward? Be careful with that. So once Paul has navigated through the many things that have distracted the Corinthians and very nearly drawn some of them away from their faith in Christ, in 2 Corinthians 8, we looked at his first appeal to them last week, he begins to tell them how to handle that money and what practically is going to be done to make sure that their generosity actually makes it to Jerusalem and brings relief to the poor. And though that was a problem about 2,000 years ago in somebody else's church from people we've never met addressing a problem that we no longer face, it's a seatbelt. Because if churches like ours do not handle their finances with wise, godly integrity, we will destroy this congregation. And we can do it in one week. That's the purpose of the seatbelt. The seatbelt is the least exciting part of your car. 
You don't even think about it when you put it on. But if you wait until you're skidding and crashing to look for it and put it on, guess what? It's too late. And you'll suffer the injury because you didn't do the mundane, unexciting thing of putting on your seatbelt first. And this is one reason we teach through the Bible. It keeps me honest. It keeps me off my hobby horses. And because I love this church, because I'm a part of this church, I want this church always to walk in the wise, godly integrity in all matters, including money that has always characterized it, And when I'm no longer here for any reason, I want you, the congregation, to know what to expect and what to demand from the people that are entrusted with the money that they will align with the principles that this ancient letter lays out for us in startling detail. Look with me, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's talk about having financial integrity in an age of scandal. Because if you watch the news, if you read the internet, you will soon realize that there are many churches in the news that did not bother to secure their seatbelt. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. Paul says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Is the name Titus familiar to you? There's a book in the New Testament that bears his name. He is one of Paul's trusted co-workers in the gospel. He received one of the three letters that we call pastoral epistles. Timothy received two of them. Titus received the third. This is a man who works closely with Paul, who is known to Paul, and evidently Paul has a great deal to say about Titus and to thank God regarding Titus. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. What is this about? Titus is going to be one of those who is going to be entrusted with handling their offering that they promised a year earlier and now is urgently needed in Jerusalem. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. He's referring to their generous giving. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our goodwill. Look carefully at the end of verse 19. This ordinary offering that is going to bring relief to people, it's going to feed Christians and save their physical lives just as Jesus has saved their souls, Paul says, when that happens, when we take your generosity, your gracious gift, and we travel safely all the way to Jerusalem, that is going to bring Glory, who's it say there? Of the Lord. That is going to be the the glory of the Lord. In other words, the way a congregation handles its money is deeply spiritual. There's a very mundane, mechanical side of who gives and what is done with it and how is it secure and how do we make sure that it's not misspent or embezzled or diverted but underneath all of that is, Paul says in verse 19, 
the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. God is glorified when his children are generous. He is glorified further when their generosity is backed up by financial integrity, and that shows the goodwill of everybody involved. So in this seatbelt matter, in this nearly family chat, because we have to follow the contours of Scripture, believe you me, there are much greater and more important passages in the Bible than what we're sharing this morning. The glory of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that's what matters most. But this matters a great deal, because if this congregation mishandles its money, if untrustworthy people get their hands on it, It can destroy this congregation in a moment. It can neutralize us as a good news preaching group. It can bring shame to Jesus. Have you noticed? I googled just for fun this morning. I googled church financial scandals. The numbers are overwhelming and worldwide. So what do we do about it? What should our church know about financial integrity. Well, the first thing you should know is this, character matters. Character matters when it comes to handling anything of importance, including money. And Paul here begins to explain the credentials of Titus and of these other two unnamed people who are going to handle the money who are going to go to Corinth, receive the money from the Corinthian treasury into their person, are going to make an admittedly hazardous journey all the way to Jerusalem. Here are then signs of ministerial integrity. First of all, you should look for ministers, those who have a position of trust enough to do anything on behalf of the church with his finances. You should always check first if those people have a resilient enthusiasm to serve people. Let me take you back to the passage. Verse 16, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. Paul said, when I look at Titus, I find a heart just like, my, just like my own. He cares for you sincerely. He cares for you earnestly the same way I do. He not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Twice in two verses, Paul says he really cares about you. He's not just a soldier following orders. He sincerely and genuinely cares about what is happening with you. The earnestness, the sincerity, the pure-heartedness, the good motivation means the world when it comes to somebody who, as I do, has the trust of standing in front of a congregation and opening the Bible to them. If you cannot find in a minister, a fledgling minister or a minister who is already serving, a resilient enthusiasm to care for people and serve for them, he may be disqualified or he simply may need a break, but he is not fit in that moment to serve God's people. And I say that with all due fear and trepidation because I've been in ministry for over 30 years now and there have been some very, very low points. But if God called you and you heard his voice and the gospel in his church matters the way the Bible says that it does, 
You have to rely on God's grace for him to give you your heart of, of love and care for people back and get back to them. Have you all heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? You may have probably here because it's my favorite piece of knowledge outside of the Bible. Dunning-Kruger are two Ivy League psychologists who in 1999 published together a peer research, a peer-validated paper, meaning legitimate research, not just spinning out a theory, that simply said this, the less you know about something, the more likely you are to think you would be very good at doing it. <laughs> I'm going to give you a moment to review your life and think how many times you've run into the Dunning-Kruger effect. Part of the official title of the paper is unskilled and unaware of it. The lay version is sometimes you're too dumb to know that you're dumb. Okay. Why am I telling you this? Well, it explains a great deal, including why every five-year-old boy is going to play in the big leagues in his chosen sport. Why high school and sports and friends and marriage and parenting, why it's all going to be much easier than you think. Have you noticed that? I love people who give parenting advice who do not yet have children of their own. I just, in my day, I just smiled, took that in, said, well, just wait, have two kids and write me back later and see how it's going, see what you've learned. Well, the reason I'm telling you about this is Christian ministry, along with everything else in life, appears to be an easy task. I mean, what, what else is there to do? You get to read the Bible and pray and then talk to people, that's it, that's all you do. I can't, I've lost count of the people who ask me for years now, what else do you do for work? <laughs> I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate, I'm very blessed, I, I actually have this as a full-time job. Really? You find enough to do? Most weeks. Most weeks I can find a couple things to keep me busy. Well, you know, good for you, that must be wonderful. Oh yes, it certainly is. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, because I think over every Bible college and seminary flies a banner that I saw a photograph someone had put up in a gym somewhere that said, we do this not because it's easy, but because we thought it would be easy. <laughs> I thought, now that's the flag of Dunning-Kruger right there, and I'm pretty sure it flies invisibly over every Bible college and seminary. This looks amazing. Well, listen to Paul's life. Listen to Titus. Listen at Paul's relief in verse 16 when he says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. He not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. He's into this. He, is, he has been discouraged, he has been hurt, same as me, but he keeps moving forward because he has a resilient enthusiasm to serve people. The second trait that Paul explains to us is that people in ministry who are entrusted with other people's lives, including their money, have well-known godly character. Look in verse 19. Uh, verse 18, rather, with him we are sanding the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. That's really something because they didn't even have Instagram in the first century. This unnamed man was famous for how he presented the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 15 that the gospel was that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again three days later also in keeping with the scriptures and a man whose name you do not know had grown famous in the first century for the way he presented that to people. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel and not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. In other words, the men who are willingly going to the Corinthians to receive the offering they had promised a year earlier are well known to be solid. They're trustworthy. Their hearts are in it. They love Jesus enough that they, one of them, has become well-known for telling other people about him. And finally, you may have noticed, third sign of character in the ministry of the local church, they are affirmed by the local church, not self-appointed. And that is very, very important. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. In other words, as we receive your offering, as we receive your generosity, he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us. And here's the foundation of all of it, for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. Years ago, and I never forgot it, it was just one of the trivial conversations you have as a pastor because we repel some people and fascinate others because unless you're a Christian and have been fairly involved with the church, you can't even begin to imagine what a pastor does. So I told a guy when he asked, what do you do? I'm a pastor. He goes, how do you even become one of those? And I thought, you know, that's a really interesting question. Because it's not exactly like becoming a teacher. Teachers have licensing, and credentials, education. So do pastors sometimes. A lot of pastors in the 21st century, especially with the advent of the internet, are entirely self-appointed. I'm not being critical, I'm just telling you the truth. They have appointed themselves pastors, theologians, guides, pundits, prophets, seers, knowers. And because they tend to be articulate and forceful, they gather people around them. Here's the trouble. Some of them don't know Jesus. Some do know Jesus, but they weren't sent by him. And they have appointed themselves first rather than take the New Testament pattern, which is found in other scriptures I won't take time to show you, that God deals with a person, a man or a woman, to place them in ministry, and as they begin to serve the local church, which they're already part of, the body notices what the head of the body is doing. In other words, the congregation of Jesus begins to notice what Jesus is doing in the life of that person. And they're invited to do more things, and they're set aside for training or mentoring by a pastor, and they are encouraged to 
go to Bible college or seminary or in some way, even if it's an apprenticeship, in some way begin to learn what the Scriptures teach so that they can know them, take them into their own heart, and from the reality of their own sincere love for Jesus, start investing that in the lives of other people. That's how it's supposed to work. Paul told one of the men in one of those pastoral epistles I was mentioning to not be too hasty to lay hands on someone, to not participate in other people's sins. In other words, don't ordain, don't appoint someone too quickly. Be sure who you're dealing with. Make sure that Jesus is in that person's heart. Make sure that you set them aside for ministry because Jesus has already called them and equipped them to do it. Be very, very wary of people who would claim to minister in the, in the name of Jesus to you who are self-appointed. Look with me now in verse 20. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. Remember I told you this week that this translation of the Bible, which I love, which we routinely use here in church, is a little clunky in chapter 8. Verse 20 is a good example of that clunkiness. What Paul's saying is we're doing all this so that no one can blame us by the way we handle the money that you've generously given. You're the ones that are giving it. We are just the administrators of it. We didn't give it. We're just going to manage it. You're going to put it in our hands in Corinth, and these trustworthy men are going to take it to Jerusalem. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of men. So let me tell you something very biblical, but it's going to sound a little strange because of a cultural shift that we've had which you need to pay attention to to safeguard the health of this church. Not only does character matter, shockingly, especially when it comes to money, number two, appearances matter as well. I want you to look very carefully at verse 21. We aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also, what's it say there? In the sight of men. Practically, church, please hear this. In case I'm not here much longer, I don't plan to go anywhere, but you never know. And the trustee board of this church, which you elect year by year, which has met with me so many times, has often said this, Bruce, if you get hit by a bus, and if you get hit by a bus in one meeting after about six times of me getting hit by a bus, I said, hey, can we change the scenario? Could I, could I retire or just, you know, do what everybody else does and move to Tennessee? We don't know. <laughs> We don't have to die for this scenario that we're discussing to play out, right? But if I do, let me say this very clearly, beware of anyone who says they answer to God alone, because that's not true and that's not biblical. If you ever hear a spiritual leader refuse to give account of his time, his money, his integrity, his behavior, his motivations, if he or she brushes you off with, I answer to God alone, you're in the presence of someone shady. Because it is wrong to seek praise from people. Jesus told us that much. 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, make sure that you don't do your praying and your giving in order to be seen by people. Don't do anything for the mere praise and applause of people. It's wrong to seek praise from people, but note this, it's required to demonstrate integrity to people. And there's a difference. I'll speak of myself. I should never preach, sing, counsel, or do anything else in the name of Jesus just so that you'll like it and think I'm a good guy. That is an unworthy, scandalous, hellish motivation. And it can be tricky. Because Jesus does not forbid public prayer, for instance. Jesus himself prayed in public very, very often. What is wrong? Praying in a way that you hope people like it and think you're awesome. Have you ever heard people pray this way? I can't see their motivations, but I went to college and seminary with men who were entirely different the minute they started praying. They're just, just dudes talking, hey, would you, uh, would you pray for us? Yes, of course, our Father. We pause before thee. Like, thee? What is going on? Were we back in Elizabethan England? One guy, famous, so famous that even I know about him, even though he taught my parents, would pray for the guy that's about to teach them in college, Lord, we pray that you would anoint these lips of clay. <laughs> wow, like I need to think about that one. What? <laughs> Mixing a lot of biblical imagery there. What's that about? Well, I can't judge motivations, but I can discern behavior. That looks like a guy who's trying to pray in front of others so that they'll be impressed, not so that God will hear from them. So it is absolutely true that it is wrong to seek praise from people, but look at Paul's intensity, clarity, his decisiveness. He will not have his integrity questioned. He will demonstrate it instead. 2 Corinthians 8.21. Read that with me off the screen, please. Paul said, We aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Who comes first? The Lord. But because the Lord matters, you have to give an account for yourself and your life also to the people who Jesus called you to serve. It's foundational to pastoral ministry. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's a pastor, an elder, a shepherd, a leader in the church, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, Respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of, what's it say there? Money, not a lover of money. It's okay for him to have it, he just can't love it. He can use it, he can give it, he can earn it, he can spend it, he's just forbidden to love it. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by, what's it say there? Outsiders. 
so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Do you see how public-facing that entire list is? He can't be a brand-new convert. He must have grown up in the grace of the Lord. He has to be mature. Pastors are called elders for a reason. They not, may not physically be the oldest people in the church, but spiritually they should be among the most mature. The list is headed by this sobering phrase, an overseer must be above what? And you're asking yourself, where do we find such people? Because that looks like a guy that's perfect. It's not. Above reproach literally means that he cannot be held. In other words, that the pastor, the minister, in this case, expanding this out a little bit, all of these people who were entrusted with the church's time, and in this case the church's money, must be the kind of people who cannot be credibly accused of serious wrongdoing. That's what it means to be above reproach. It doesn't mean perfect, otherwise our pulpits and our pews would be empty. There's only one perfect man. His name is Jesus. He came to save sinners like me. But above reproach, that if a serious accusation is leveled, the response evidently from both the congregation and the community should be, oh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like him. It is required because appearances matter for people to answer not only to God but also to others and it's required to demonstrate integrity to other people. Paul closes in chapter, in chapter 9. Look with me down in 8.22 now. With them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested. There's the character element again and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit, and as for our brothers, they are the messengers of the church is the glory of Christ. In other words, these guys we're talking about represent Jesus well. They've been appointed and sent out by their churches. They bring glory to Jesus, verse 24. Now Paul finally is going to turn to them because what has this all been about? I may have lost you in this long explanation. What has all this passage been about? What happened was a year earlier the Corinthian church promised that they would send financial relief to starving people and for a year they had done how much? Nothing. And Paul says... We have a great deal of confidence in you. Verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Watch him very gently tell them it's time to do it. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. In other words, you're serving these starving Christians. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. That's the region to their north saying that Achaia, in other words, where they live, has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Again, the translation's clunky, but can you read through the formal language to see what Paul is saying? So he's saying, hey, I've been bragging about you. I've been telling those people to the north of you who are so desperately poor that you've been ready for a year catch that? You're right to laugh, sir. Do you catch that? 
I've been telling them you're awesome and that you're generous and you're ready to help your fellow starving Christians. You're so awesome. I've been telling people that you're going to do that for a year now. You getting the message? It's time to do it. Verse 3, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians, those are the people who are nearly as poor as the folks in Jerusalem to their north, otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be, what's it say? Humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Third thing, third truth we can draw from this ancient seatbelt passage regarding church finances. Loving such servants and supporting such ministries matters. Ministry moves folks at the speed of trust. And good intentions should always lead to good action, otherwise it's just wordy disobedience. Paul has been taking an entire chapter to tell the Corinthians something very clear, very strongly, but tell them something very gently. You've been talking about doing the right thing for starving people for a year. Folks, everything's in order. Trustworthy people who are known to you, known to God, and known to me are on their way. Folks, it's time to do it. Let me suggest to you in closing that a great deal of talking about what you're going to do in the name of Christ is not nearly as helpful as actually doing it. I read the most fascinating study that people who begin to publicly talk about the improvements they're going to make in their lives are actually less likely than the people who don't talk about them. And the researchers theorize that when we start talking about the great things we're going to do, we get a warm, good feeling from merely talking about them, and the incentive to actually do them falls off. What is Paul saying here? Well, you've been separated from Jesus and while our relationship has been broken, your brothers back in Jerusalem have actually been suffering. You have it. Your heart was there. Your promise was made. Now it's time to do it. But don't miss this. All of this, Paul says, is done with grace. All of it is done with love. Verse 5, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a, what's it say? A willing gift, not as an exaction. In other words, and hear this please, hear this from the Bible, hear this from my heart 22,000 years later. Christian ministry, when it deals with money, is not a shakedown. There's no pressure, there's no guilt, there's no manipulation, there's nothing that resembles and comes within a mile of what anyone would call spiritual or emotional abuse. What is Christian giving? It is grateful Christians in response to the immense love of Christ, pooling their resources, including their money, to do something together that none of them could do alone, 
so that relief can be offered to the poor, so that the gospel of Jesus can be preached, so that the glory of God can be known and demonstrated to the world. All of that requires integrity. It requires integrity from the givers, and it takes require integrity from the few who were entrusted with handling that congregation, because in Christian ministry, it's integrity that matters most. Let's pray together. We just close our service together praying for this church. You have been so generous. You're so generous with your time. You're so generous with your love for others. So generous with people like our FCA missionary, Chris Jones, who left the teaching ranks to serve God full time in that ministry. We've got missionaries all around the world, many of whom have already met. Their Sundays are coming to an end as ours just begins. In the 930 service, we're going to baptize a little girl who trusted Christ here. She heard the gospel first from her family and then from many, many Sunday school teachers, and now she's utterly ready to publicly obey Jesus as your little sister in Christ. That's what serving, that's what praying, that's what giving, that's what collaborating does. But it has to be done with integrity. So let's pray that our hearts would be right and that the integrity and the faithfulness of God would always be present in this congregation.